Right now, you can earn 5.1% on U.S. Treasuries. That's right, 5.1% on U.S. Treasuries. Not in DeFi. It's on the public.com app. We just partnered with public.com for Empire. Super easy to get 5.1% on your U.S. Treasuries. You just go to public.com forward slash Empire. Open up a U.S. Treasury account. It takes like a minute. Put your cash to work. You also get access to a whole bunch of other things like stocks, crypto, treasuries, all in one place. Super cool. Public.com forward slash empire. That's public.com forward slash empire. We will talk more about them later in the show. Uh, all right, everyone. All right, let's jump in. Let's jump in. All right, yeah. everyone. Welcome back to another uh, roundup. We've got a little crossover with uh, Empire and Bell Curve, but we have uh, dropped the dead weight. So Santiago's gone. Vance is gone. We've got, uh, I don't think Santi, but we're going to enjoy those. Uh, that, but, uh, Michael's one and two. Uh, and for the uh, Empire listeners, uh, that is Michael Ippolito from Blockworks and uh, Michael Anderson from Framework. And then we have Vance Plus uh, Plus, otherwise known as uh, Miles O'Neill from Reverie. So uh, welcome, guys. Great to be here. Good beer. 50 Michael, 50 uh, whether or not. Uh, uh, Vance and Santiago return to our respective roundups after that intro. But <laughs> yeah. I was going to say a little no, less than that, but you know, <laughs> Michael, the real question is, Ed, uh, I mean, I feel like I delivered on a picture of bald Yano when, uh, when Yano was gone, like, do we have a bald Vance or any of the like? I know, I know. I, <clears throat> I dropped the ball. I'm going to have to share it after the fact and put it in the chat. Um, I, I, uh, <laughs> this morning was kind of busy. <laughs> <laughs> Look, all I'm saying is a little unsolicited advice. If you want people to take framework seriously, like someone's got to go bald. You guys are just too strong on the hair game right now. Um, but, get a couple you know, he did get that. it. He, he is currently, I think, on a plane to Tokyo. And uh, he got probably the shortest haircut I've ever seen him get yesterday. <laughs> mm. So, you know, we're getting close. How do you get in the right direction? At least closer. Yeah. Threading, yeah. Threading the right direction. <laughs> There's nothing quite like... A, especially like a very short or like kind of trying something with a haircut to make you feel like you're about 12 years old in terms of insecurity. So we'll have to uh, instant, instant regret that. every time. Instant yeah. regret. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah, you want to give us governance? Yeah. Let's yeah, talk, about talk about Yeah. Okay, cool. And then I want to get into some MEV stuff, but let's start with Arbitrum governance. So the TLDR of uh, what happened this week is so Arbitrum launched their token. Um, and then uh, AIP-1, which was the uh, Arbitrum Improvement Proposal Framework um, proposal went live, the first proposal for Arbitrum. And the TLDR of it is that they were uh, they wanted to move 750 million Arbitrum tokens, which was roughly a billion dollars from the treasury into the foundation to be able to do like at a high level, like BD deals, grants, um, like hiring and things like that. Um, Blockworks research actually came out pretty pretty strong in this one and, and, and voted no against it. And, and I think uh, helped to tilt the vote in the no direction. Uh, the, the overview on I think why we voted no was that there, it makes sense to probably move money from the treasury into the foundation, but there really was like very little transparency into what was actually gonna happen with that billion dollars. And I think there's a bunch of second order impact questions from that, uh, from that, that proposal. Like the big thing that was on my mind is like, well, the, when, when a new token goes live, one of the first things that people look at is like, what allocation is going towards like the team? What's going to the investors? What's going to the foundation? And um, my first thought was like, if the first thing that you do is move money from the treasury to the foundation, why don't you just start with more money, more of the tokens in the foundation to begin with? Uh, which, so it feels like a little bit of governance uh, 
kind of theater there uh, in a way, but I want to get your guys' take. So what do you guys think about what, what happened this, uh, the past couple of days with Arbitrum here? I think one more minor bit of detail, uh, Michael, sorry, before you jump in is like, I think the other reason why this was not very well received is after the note, after the vote started to shift to no, there was some on-chain sleuthing that was done that revealed that actually the funds had already been distributed mm -hmm. to the foundation and come to realize with hindsight, you know, Arbitrum says, actually, this wasn't really a vote. This was a ratification of something that that has already happened. So even though the vote was actually turned down, the, the end result was no, uh, the foundation still has those funds. So just like a little bit of uh, additional color for and kind of why they were getting so much heat. This episode is brought to you by Valora. Valora is a self-custody, mobile-first wallet, and the easiest way to send, swap, collect, and purchase digital goods on the Celo blockchain. Download the app and start exploring today at valoraapp.com forward slash empire. So, yeah, exactly. I mean, that, that was essentially what I was going to talk about. Um, but more to the point of the point of doing it after the token had launched is so that you can use the, the mechanism of decentralized governance to be able to promote the community and, and tokens being part of the governance mechanism. Um, it just, you know, doesn't look that great when it, when it gets found out to be more decentralization theater than actual true decentralization. And frankly, like the, the moment when a, a token launches, it's like the most, you know, wild and crazy period of time. You've got like tokens flying everywhere. You had this massive airdrop, you know, there isn't a consistent token originated community because the tokens literally didn't exist and, and suddenly they do. And, and so in retrospect, I mean, it's just it's the worst time to be trying to corral everybody to get behind a, a vote. Um, and I, I think it definitely kind of ran in their face a bit. And and I hopefully think that, you know, the Arbitrum team will, will be stronger because of this going forward and, and definitely have that perspective. But they're going to have to learn how to engage the community in, in a different way. Um, this is just a testament to that. Yeah, I think my initial reaction is that uh, or I guess two things. One is that I think it does provide some insights into the regulatory challenges that these teams face because, you know, it would have been a lot easier just to take that seven or eight percent and add that to the team's allocations. But then, you know, going out and then deploying that to, you know, do BD or other things that that presents some some regulatory challenges, it looks like, you know, you're more like a security, essentially. Um, and then the second option, you know, would have been, I guess, carving out like a entirely different category beyond the community treasury from the very from day zero for this foundation. But then, of course, you know, that's not you know in the hands of the of the community. It's probably a decision that the community should make. Um, so you can't do that. And you know, so you get to this third option, which is basically you know present it as if it was part of the treasury, but then as soon as governance launches, move it into this own, you know, foundation and hope that you don't get any pushback. Um, and so I think, you know, this would be a lot easier if you didn't have those challenges in the first place. But the second takeaway for me is just, you know, I think it's a lesson in terms of that, that others should look to for, for learning best practices on proposal submissions. Um, and if there's one thing we've seen is that you know, first of all, when you bundle a lot of pretty major decisions into one omnibus proposal, um, say like the Atom 2.0, you know, saga, right? That was a, there was, that was a loaded proposal. Um, 
you are just setting yourself up for, for more, I would say, you know, pushback, right? And so it's much better to isolate these proposals separately. Um, and then really when it comes to anything around, you know, treasury spend, uh, there is a huge onus on you to, to for, for transparency. Um, and there was just some some table stakes details that I uh, that you guys called out that were that were missing from that, especially of a, a treasury of that you know notional size, um, at least in U.S. dollar value. And you know, like we we run grants programs, and we have to be extremely explicit about our processes, right? Who's in control of the actual funds? Who's doing the day to day work? Why are we you know you know capable of doing this? Why should you trust us? And why should you trust the folks on the multi sig? Like all of these things, I would say, are standard for you know a ten or twenty million dollar grants fund, much less a you know billion dollar foundation uh, proposal. So, yeah, I thought I thought it's early lessons, you know, uh, and if you're launching it now anytime soon. I would you know just take some notes. Um, good thing to avoid going forward. Get your little yellow notepad out and just jot some. I'm in total agreement with you, Miles, and I I do think it's it's worth just highlighting again. Like it's a very different regulatory environment and frankly there's an organizational challenge around DAOs that haven't necessarily been solved yet so i think it's always fair to like give the benefit of the doubt to these teams that are trying to navigate really difficult problems in real time in a highly competitive environment that said i think there were some some pretty obvious mistakes that were made here and to your point just to rehighlight this was 750 million our, our ARB tokens, which is over a billion dollars worth of notional value in US dollar terms. And the, the explanation that the foundation gave, uh, this, this comes from Patrick McQuarrie. Uh, he said that the foundation needs a sustainable amount of funding, not necessarily governed by tokens to deal with partners who won't do on-chain transactions to make IRL partnerships, right? Like, uh, like, a, like kind of some of the ones that Polygon has gained a lot of attention for to avoid voter fatigue, et cetera. And there definitely is some concept of this even within, um, you know, sort of companies today, right? It doesn't make sense to have every single person weighing in on every decision, no matter how small or no matter what the expertise is. But I'd say there's a, a fine line and a spectrum. Uh, but I think that begs the question then, Mike, of like, so so Patrick's saying that they need to use those funds to do these BD. BD deals with like off-chain entities, so like big brands. And I'm assuming what they're saying is like they need to compete with like the polygons of the world or, um, you know, when Polygon's doing a deal with like a Starbucks or a Nike or I don't, whoever, there are there are other big like Web3 or like a meta or something like that. The, the way those deals work is like there's oftentimes almost like, not like a bidding process, but they are incentivizing those companies to work with them with money. So Polygon might pay 5 million bucks or 10 million bucks or I've even heard upwards of like 20 or 30 million bucks to go to go convince one of those web uh, those web two brands to work with them. Um, so what Arbitrum is actually saying here is like they need, you know, 20 million dollars to be able to go like compete with Polygon and win the Starbucks BD deal. But in that case, shouldn't the community and they're saying they don't they shouldn't have to like ask the basically community if that's a good use of funds. Isn't that a perfect point in time of where you should actually ask the community of like, hey, I want to go spend $20 million to go try to do this like beta deal with Starbucks. Like that, that feels like a lot of money for that kind of a deal. So I'll opine here and, and say, um, <clears throat> I, I think there is a difficulty in especially the, the type of transaction that you're talking about, you know, where a lot of those deals are competitive and a lot of those deals need to stay private until the deal is done. 
Uh, and yeah. if you're in a bake-off process yeah. of, um, you know, against any other participant, you know, they now have information against you that they can use in their process, which is going to be private. So I do think that there is an element of, I mean, the question that I was going to pose to the group is, what do we think is, you know, and I don't think there's a clear answer, but like, what are the different types of governance models that that work and which ones don't? Um, I think a pure, you know, token, one vote, one token model for every single initiative is probably not the best model. And you shouldn't be opining, you know, you shouldn't be asking the the entire audience of what we should do in every single decision. The one that I do actually kind of like is the multi-council model where your tokens mm -hmm. are voted to elect people to have different controls over some of this stuff. And um, Synthetics actually has a, a really good example of this where they've got a Spartan council who does the upgrades for the protocol. They've got a treasury council who manages the treasury, you know, and, and the point of the treasury council is they know the information, like how many, how much people are getting paid uh, via the treasury when they're contributing to the protocol, um, any of the business development deals and, and you know, what the, what the details of those are. Um, <clears throat> but that, that isn't shared with the entire community. Their budget is determined by the community and the token holders, but their process and um, they're evaluated with outcomes. That that's something that goes to the community, but the, the internals is not. Yeah. Yeah. I guess one interesting, maybe nuance that I'm personally curious about is, you know, I've always gotten the sense that Polygon um, and, and, you know, even Optimism were doing these deals off of their own balance sheet of the, the operating company and um, using their own cash that they've raised. Um, you know, I think Polygon raised like $400 million at some point in the, in the uh, last cycle. Um, and why, you know, Arbitrum is opting to, you know, do this out of, you know, what is, I guess, the community's uh, allocation of tokens in the first place. Um, but I guess that aside, yeah, I mean, Michael, to your point, I think at the very least you need to, you know, if, if it's a foundation or a grants program, they need to have a, like an approved mandate. Like, here's what we're going, give up, like, trust us. We're going to go do these private deals that need to be done, you know, behind closed doors until they're announced. But here's what you're giving us money to go do. And I think that that, even that was missing here. Um, Right. Especially, in, and I think like, you know, the proper amount of transparency and the proper, you know, the governance structure kind of depends by function, um, like upgrades to the smart contract bridge. That is something that should absolutely be, you know, a large council of, you know, multi-stakeholders from all different sorts of backgrounds, right? Um, whereas I don't think like having a council to do BD is actually very effective. I think that's one thing where you kind of, you you approve you know, a team that you trust and is capable to go do it for you. And then, you know, have them basically report back every quarter, every six months or something like that. And then decide, do you want to keep funding them? Do you want to claw back the funding if they've done a terrible job? Um, so yeah, I guess that's my initial reaction. I don't think there's, you know, I, I do like the different, like the two, the two house, you know, governance models. Um, I don't think you know something that's like a council for every single function works well, but um, you know I think you can you can mix and match these things. Yeah, just confirming there. By the way, I was sharing screen for for folks who are following along via video, but it was a four hundred fifty million dollar raise, which was led by Sequoia for Polygon. Date of that was February of twenty twenty two. So, honestly, a lot of a lot of the difference that gets made in for crypto is like if you raise money at the right time. That's exactly the right. That was a good move from, from Polygon. Right. And they've got that in cash and then they can go do 
they don't have to go through governance, right? Well, let, let me, can right. I actually push back on that, Mike? Like, um, it was a good move from Polygon because they were able to raise 450 million and then go win all yeah. the BD deals. But like, do we think that's a good use of money in the first place? Like, they probably spent 100 okay. million bucks on on winning these Web three <laughs> or Web two deals. A hundred. So two two separate parts of that question actually. Like, one is just you know I think the the strategy of staying stay existing in crypto throughout multiple cycles is just sell your equity when it's like the most expensive at the top of the cycle and use that to like get you through the the bear market um so that that's more what i was talking about and coinbase i don't know remember you know we, we talked about this when we saw they did that 1.5 billion dollar debt issuance i remember the two of us were having a conversation like maybe this is a sign that like coinbase deciding to finance themselves here probably means we're like approaching some sort of top um yeah. but then the, the the meat of your question there was are these BD deals good from the perspective of Polygon? And this is where like, I'm not an expert in this. I have my own sort of opinion and I don't have the knowledge of like all of these deals and the results that they've had. Um, I think so what's your the, the deal. <laughs> <laughs> I was saying my diplomatic opinion. I was trying to give you a non-answer. <laughs> I, want the, I, I think... want the non-diplomatic opinion. <laughs> It's kind of like it's look, it really depends if it's kind of like being in the business of honestly, like venture or content, you're trying to take a portfolio of different bets and hoping that one like really ends up paying off. And if one ends up paying off, it's going to pay for all the losers. And at the end of the day, if Polygon lands one of these things and they pay 20 million bucks to Starbucks and that actually ends up onboarding 10 million people onto their blockchain, then boom. It you know it doesn't matter what you, what you did with the rest of the four hundred fifty million because that's going to be such a gigantic win. If they miss, and probably most of these are going to miss and look like expensive wastes of money with the benefit of hindsight, then everyone's going to say it was a really stupid way to spend that money. I yeah. think the 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 product strategy for Polygon right now is to not have a product strategy and <laughs> try everything. <laughs> Yeah, casting a wide net, both in terms of yeah, but yeah, that's generally my take. Like, jury dude, is still dude, out. This might be an obvious thing to you guys. I uh, I originally thought that these ecosystem funds were like a crypto thing. I, I was kind of skeptical of these ecosystem funds as well, which is mm -hmm. kind of related to what we're talking about. Um, but I met with someone who was on the who was like first five employees at um Amazon Alexa. And uh, he was explaining that they did the exact same thing. They had like a hundred million dollar ecosystem fund to convince people to come build on Amazon Alexa. And he said that it's very common practice, which this that might just be my naivete, but I never knew that was a thing. There, there was a, I mean, there is a model in like, I think it was mostly in like the late nineties, early two thousands, where you wouldn't necessarily have like the company itself be, fund a specific venture fund to go off for these ecosystems. But I very viscerally remember Kleiner Perkins famously had the Java fund, which was anyone who's building applications in Java, yeah. they would fund that. They also had the iFund. If you were building an application on iPhones, they, they would give you some, some funding. I mean, you can kind of think of it in the same way, which is I'm sure a lot of that capital came, came from the respective invested interests uh, in those ecosystems. <clears throat> but it is interesting to think, okay, well, how are we going to build this platform? Oh, we need to invest in things that are going to build on this platform. Oh, we need to go fund those. Okay, let's go. Like that That model is definitely tried and true. The one thing I will say about Polygon is 
uh, and I don't know this for sure, but my guess is that, you know, they have two buckets uh, of assets to pull from when they're making these deals. They have the cash on the balance sheet and they have the Polygon, you know, the Matic token itself. My guess, and, and once again, don't know this for sure, is that a lot of those deals were actually struck with Matic itself, not with the cash on the balance sheet. Cash on the balance sheet is funding the hundreds of people that work at Polygon, not, not, the, uh, not the business development deals. Um, so so that, that's kind of how I think they do it. And, and I know that this is a playbook that Ripple ran way back in the day. This is a playbook that a bunch of these ecosystems have run where it's like, hey, we need to find massive ecosystem partners. Let's just give them $10 million worth of our, our currency. Then they're bought in. They have the asset that they are going to need to use the ecosystem, run a validator, you know, run a node, whatever it may be. But they're also going to be able to be participatory in the network with governance and potentially see upside um, with with growth of the network itself. So I, I think that's probably what was going on and what has been going on with a lot of this BD stuff, um, less the cash itself. Just kind of cracking up, matching Starbucks, not knowing what to do with this $20 million of Matic. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, so oh, I, I, I have a friend. Get this back. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, ha- I have a friend who is, is one of the VPs of finance at a large social media company that ha- is trying to go public, um, who's been involved in Web3. Um, so you can piece the two loops together if you want. But they randomly have like all these tokens on their balance sheet. And they're like, I, wh- like where do we custody them? Apparently, they were stored in like some some like MetaMask wallet on one engineer's device. And oh, like, like what do we do? Like one, we have to recognize. <laughs> I can set up the MetaMask for right. us. We'll you know, it's like okay, right. we got to put them onto a hardware <laughs> wallet. Like we need to safeguard this stuff. And it's like, how do we account for these things? Like, do we have to disclose these in the S one? Like, exactly. <laughs> it comes painful. Oh, yeah, maybe we could pivot this conversation into uh, Mike. You had a pretty interesting tweet uh, th- this week about ETH L twos um, having every feature that. Uh, all L1s are criticized for. And I think the things that you specifically mentioned were um, centralized single sequencers, network downtime, opaque uh, opaque resource allocation, which is what we're talking about right now, wildly expensive valuations, also what we're talking about right now. And you said time to call spade a spade, right? ETH L2s have every feature that all L1s are criticized for. And you got some pretty interesting engagement and and, uh, pushback on that, I'd say. I'm curious, like now that you've had a couple of days to digest that, like, what are your thoughts around it? Or maybe do you want to share a little more into what you meant by that tweet? Yeah, I, th- I think the um, the thing that I'm kind of trying to ask myself and one, I, I do just think there's a look, the some of the other ecosystems outside of especially Bitcoin and ETH take like an enormous amount of flack. A lot of it is very well deserved. A lot of it is just because some of these blockchain ecosystems are just not at the same point of maturity and haven't been allowed to achieve the same uh, like sort of deflationary schedule or inflation or emission schedule um, or level of decentralizations that uh, decentralization that more mature blockchain ecosystems have. So that was kind of the point that I was that I was trying to make with that. Um, but I think I would I actually kind of want to ask this this question to you guys, which I think there's kind of an interesting comparison to be made here between this is hypothetical to to all of you guys. Um, the FDV of Solana and Arbitrum are about the same. They're about between 11 and $12 billion each. I'd be curious if you guys had to invest in, in one of those or, or buy them at the current price, which one would seem more attractive to you and why? <laughs> Disclosure, not financial advice. 
<laughs> not financial advice. Not financial. Spinion. Put on put on our little speculator caps here, and uh, and yeah, I just love to know what, like how you guys would construct the argument. I think it's a really interesting question, and um, we're not investors in either of them. Uh, don't intend to. Not financial advice. Um, the the way that I would see it, and this is going to be no surprise um, to uh, to you guys. Um, let's just say that everything else is equal. The token economics are the same, so the value accrual model is generally the same. I, I think there is still kind of a question as to what the value accrual model will be for Arbitrum, but that's that's a question that exists relative to where you would uh, see the value accrual potential with Solana. <clears throat> um, so let's just say that those are the same. The token economics of in terms of distribution. So uh, one of the reasons why you know you look at how much has been vested, how much is liquid, is because you want to know what those unlocks are and who who potentially bought at a much lower price, who would potentially want to sell at a at the current price. Um, that will drive price action in a lot of these ecosystems. Um, and then what you really want to look at is what's the growth, what's the potential go-to-market strategy, who's building on top of it, and you know where is that trending. So all else being equal, that's kind of how I would think about it, where what is who is on the up and who is on the down. Um, I would say Arbitrum is is definitely on the up relative to Solana, um, just because they're an ETH ecosystem. Um, <clears throat> they have historically been the most used ecosystem out of the top L2s on top of Ethereum. Um, and with 4844, there's a potential that their cost drops uh, to something below what you would see on Solana even. Um, so that I think is is a huge variable. Unfortunately, I'd say like Solana um, did get caught up in the FTX debacle, you know, unfortunately, and and not to their own, um, uh, not, not something that they did specifically themselves. Um, and anecdotally, we've just heard a number of uh, either games or, or application developers that are moving away from the Solana ecosystem. Um, so that that is the lifeblood of growth for these platforms. And if you start to see negative growth, that's a really bad sign. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, it also kind of depends on what what Arbitrum wants to be, uh, which I think is it's not totally clear to me right now. But um, you know, do they want? I think a fair compare or a more apples to apples comparison is, you know, Arbitrum, the general purpose roll up and the prospects of that versus Solana, the general purpose L1 um, mm. and, and two different economic models around, you know, and, and growth prospects, honestly, of, of that. But I think where it becomes apples to oranges a little bit is if, uh, you know, Arbitrum starts and, and I think they're heading this direction. It's more like a, uh, you know, a roll up framework um, that, there's going to be the Arbitrum general purpose rollup, but Arbitrum's obviously launching lots of other types of, you know, app, I would say rollup frameworks and tooling for, you know, whether it be app specific rollups, um, you know, I think it's Arbitrum Nova, um, right? And so Orbit, I think, right? Yeah, Orbit. I can't, I can't remember the names of them off the top of my head, but you know, I think if you're just comparing the 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 rollup to Solana L1, which I guess they're both general purpose. You know, you're, you're looking at like, you know, whatever they can get on gas fees plus potentially, you know, MEV revenue in the future. Um, if they decide to do some sort of like sequencer, you know, uh, like PBS, uh, you know, auction or something like that. Um, but yeah, I, I think, I think Solana 
and then if you think about like the verticals, I think Solana is kind of soul searching at the moment, um, given that, you know, DeFi has taken such a hit over there uh, and, you know, kind of retail like Web3 activity is down, but still seems like that's more kind of the, the niche they're going for, which, which I think is much more promising than competing on the DeFi side. Um, but yeah, I think it also depends on, you know, is, is, like Arbitrum Multiconet put out a shared sequencer service that that all of its apps can tap into, right? That's another form of revenue. Um, is there going to be some sort of like, you know, uh, any sort of, I don't know, economic share from the other tools that they're putting out? Um, or is it just going to be completely free, open source, like SDK tooling? Um, yeah, I think there's probably more more angles for value accrual with with Arbitrum, or maybe it's just a more complicated, kind of unclear future. Whereas Solana, you kind of you you know what it's going for, right? You don't know exactly what type of activity it really wants or is going to. It's kind of out of their control since it's you know permissionless in general purpose. But um, yeah, I just want to call out that nuance. Mm. Yeah, I mean, another answer to this is neither. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i i don't know i had a i was just kind of thinking about this myself and like i've i've you know i'm not really 100 percent sure but uh i i do disagree with you i actually think i'm you know not financial advice <laughs> there are times to charm but uh i have i think solana is going to end up doing much better than basically the the consensus majority would expect and i don't have like my non i've got some technical arguments and some non-technical arguments which is purely based on kind of pattern matching but I sort of remember at the um, at the nadir of the last bear cycle during around like 2019. You know, the consensus bet then was not Ethereum. The consensus bet was Bitcoin. And like, if you look at how Bitcoin did during the last bull cycle, it did like well, but it underperformed. You know, most other tokens that that did better. And I I think the one thing that the Bitcoiners kind of didn't take into account was that there's so much more the liquidity kind of cuts both ways right so the 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 larger market cap means that you need more marginal dollars to come in to move the price either up or down right so that's like that's it, un, it uh outperformed on the way down but it also didn't go up as much as people expected cuz i just didn't think they don't think they took that into account i think one dynamic of like the layer 2s on eth that people i haven't really heard anyone say this but it would make sense they would lot it would logically work like this. I think people allocate to different ecosystems. Like they'd be like, I'm, you know, there's kind of like different layer ones, which are seen as like an index of everything that's going on in the ecosystem. And I think ETH went from being like, hey, I really like ETH and what's getting built on ETH. So I'm going to chuck $1,000 into ETH to I really like the ETH ecosystem. So I'm going to put $500 into ETH and 250 into Arbitrum and 250 into Optimism. And then I think that combined with the larger, you know, you know, the larger market cap of ETH and these L2s is just, I think it will be, they'll, they'll do well this, this next cycle, but I think, you know, it will underperform what people generally think is going to happen in terms of price. Whereas Solana is, they've got a lot of, they've got to get their BD chops kind of figured out. They've got to attract projects back to the space. They've got to rebuild DeFi. They've got to like capitalize on the momentum they have around any, any, nfts and they've got a solidify brand but what they've got going for them is that it's non-consensus and they still have the ability for that shit to pop because the volume is just generally lower and like that's where you get the big moves um yeah. so that's, what, that's my like yeah so you're so you're like 
your take is that when we go back into a bull market, investing becomes left bell curve. And like where we're at in the market right now, we like try to go right bell curve and like think kind of technically, but back in a bull market, we go left bell curve. And if you're investing in ETH, it's kind of confusing. You're like, does value accrue to ETH? Does value accrue to like optimism? Is it Arbitrum? So if you have a thousand bucks, you might put 500 into ETH, 250 into ARB, 250 into optimism. But for other folks, it's like the alt L1 thesis is easy. And you're just like, let me throw a thousand bucks into Solana. Is that the, is that your thesis? I think regardless bull or bear market, you need to be able to quickly quickly articulate whatever the left bell curve version is of your investment thesis. Like Preach. Bitcoin's like internet money, <laughs> internet money, bing, bang, boom. Uh, you know, Ethereum is like, internet, like you know, bing, bing, it's boom. like Bitcoin, but you can do other stuff too. You can do more stuff than you can on Bitcoin. Super easy. And then Solana's like Ethereum, but faster. And, and like, it's just very easy stuff to understand because what, what moves money moves the price of assets marginally is like you know it'll be uh retail inflows and so you have to have like a very simple easy to understand thing the l2s are a layer of complexity and it's going to divide flows do, do you think that that narrative changes ethereum but faster once 48444 goes in and uh ethereum l2s roll-ups are cheaper than solana you know assuming that solana also puts in the the free the fee market um, for it, for four goes in in a reasonable amount of time, and the the expectations are reality in terms of the cost compression. Like kind of, but you because you're like okay, this is like Ethereum, but fast. But it's also, but then immediately you ask the next question, like okay, but it's also Ethereum. So wait a second, do I invest in Ethereum the base layer or this thing on top? And it's just again, I think they'll all be successful and and fine over time. I'm just trying to take like the most left bell curve sort of explanation there. Um, yeah, it is called Bell Curve. The podcast. <laughs> it's called Bell. Yeah, I, uh, Miles, could I actually call on you and uh, Michael? I'm assuming you probably have some opinion on this as well as an investor in uh, optimism, not financial advice. But um, do you want to break down? Because Miles, we were kind of talking about this a little bit, and you have a tweet about like how you would categorize the revenue and expenses yeah. for uh, layer two. And if you want, I can actually pull up got it somewhere here but if you want to start to walk yeah. us through and then yeah. i can find this tweet i think i think it was in response to like someone was saying that you know roll-ups don't have operating costs and you know i think yeah. that we were we were kind of pushing back on that and saying that their pnl actually doesn't look that much different than than like a layer one um in the future once they have you know actually decentralized these sequencers um and maybe not as much as like you know actually bootstrapping a validator set like you know a layer one or an app chain would but there will be some sort of you know cost there so you know just running through it i guess i had for on the revenue side you have obviously the margin on gas fees that that's what they're making today right so there's a you know call data cost to post it to l1 they take a margin on top um and that's that's the basic bare bones revenue model um then in the future though you're going to basically have to have, you know, for, for DeFi, you know, oriented rollups, I would imagine there will be a decentralized sequencer set. Um, you're either going to be bootstrapping your own decentralized sequencer set and paying them somehow, or you're going to be renting, you know, ac access to a shared uh, sequencer set uh, from like an Espresso or an Astria. And, you know, that they will be secured by say, you know, eigenlayer restaking ETH or maybe some other token. Um, and you're going to have to incentivize them to take on that additional slashing risk, right? 
And so, you know, I think at the end, it looks like you know, on the cost side, you still have that, you know, call data side. You can call that either like a rev share with Ethereum or cost of goods sold. You know, you're going to have some sort of rev share likely with the sequencer set. So, you know, if you're making a 10% margin on gas fees, then maybe that goes down to a 5% margin. And that's how you're incentivizing people to take on that risk of restaking, right? Um, and then if you go a click deeper, you know, what we're seeing like Skip Protocol is doing for, for Osmosis right now, I think we'll see that expand into, um, into the roll-up side, which is basically, you know, incorporating some sort of uh, way to internalize the MEV that's generated on your roll-up through an auction. Um, and so I think longer term on the revenue side, it's the gas margins, it's the MEV auction proceeds. Um, you know, if it's a roll-up app chain, then it could have app revenue. Um, and then on the cost side, you know, like today, you've got the call date, the cost of posting data. Um, there's going to be some sort of revenue share with the sequencer set or some sort of token incentives with the sequencer set. Um, and then you've got, you know, normal, like, you know, token liquidity incentives. So I call that like CAC. And you've got, you know, what we're seeing now with Arbitrum, you're going to have to pay for grants and, and dev costs out of a foundation at some point. So. Yeah, I was just saying, I think the, the P&Ls will, like, you can kind of flush them out right now. And to say that, like, it's zero operating costs, um, you know, I think that's probably uh, unrealistic. Miles, I followed all of that, except for I have one question there. What are, um, where would you bucket on a P&L, like, incentives for other for other protocols? Where, where do yeah. you bucket that? Um, I would bucket that into uh, cost of acquisition. Um, not not cogs. No, no. I, I yeah. think I think there there's very. I would say token incentives are for the most part uh, an acquisition cost. Um, mm-hmm. I've had some yeah. back and forth with like the Lido team on whether their token incentives to say like the curve pool is the really. Curve. Yeah, like. But to me, that seems like you're trying to maintain liquidity, and that sounds like more like you're not trying to acquire those curve users or those curve LPs anymore, right? You're just trying to get them to keep their liquidity there to keep your product functional. Um, but apart from that, like if liquidity, if liquidity is core to your value prop, um, you could like like Lido, uh, you could argue that it's cogs. But for for most other circumstances, I think it's you're really incentivizing, you know, the supply side to come in and and make, you know, user experience better or you're just trying to get new users into the platform somehow. I, I've always thought that uh, liquidity incentives would also fall into effectively CAC, not maybe in the traditional sense of CAC, but it is essentially rewards for customers, you know, discounts, rewards, incentives, which is all part of, you know, broadly like marketing spend in a way. Um, which isn't really historically cogs. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah, it'll be interesting. A big, a big question on there that that like I still have and exploring right now with Hasu is basically what uh, decentral like what's the roadmap for decentralizing your sequencer and like what is the model going to be for that? And like Astria and Espresso are kind of the two that have put forth different models there, yeah. and it's kind of unclear um they're i think they're both they're both promising but we'll just have to see how it ends up ends up shaking out regardless you're gonna have to pay for it right and that's that was kind of my point right now is like sure there's no there's 
the sequencer is pure profit or like, you know, minus like the call posting data, but like those margins will get, you know, eaten away by like actually having somebody else do the work for you instead of, you know, being a company running this. All right, everyone, today we're talking treasuries. Right now, you can earn up to 5.1% on U.S. treasuries. That's right, 5.1% on U.S. treasuries. I will be honest with you all, I never really thought about investing in uh, in treasuries, and I think probably for two reasons. One is that the yields were always super low, right? 1%, 2%, not that exciting. 5.1% through the public.com app, kind of a no-brainer. Uh, number two is that I don't know if any of you have been to the U.S. Treasury website, but it feels like it was built for like, 1995 internet period, not 2023 period. Super clunky website, really didn't trust sending my money there, had no idea how to navigate it. Now I am super excited to share our public.com partnership. They have made buying US treasuries really easy. You can just move your cash into their US treasury account right from your phone and start earning 5.1% today. No minimum hold periods, no settlement delays. You can access your cash whenever you want. They have crypto, they have fractional shares of art, other collectibles all in one place. Super interesting platform. Really excited to share them with you all. The way to download this and the way to use it, public.com forward slash empire. Don't go somewhere else. Santi and I got to get credit for this one. So you go to public.com forward slash empire. I'm telling you the URL because we got to get credit. Download the app, move your cash into their US treasury account. Hope you guys enjoy. Valora is the ultimate wallet for exploring the Celo ecosystem. Easily manage over 50 crypto assets and over 30 different dApps for swapping, sending, and managing your assets, all from your mobile phone. The world is mobile first, and Valora believes that crypto should be too. Their global app is localized in over 13 different languages in over 100 countries, giving crypto explorers like you a simple and accessible way to send payments, purchase digital goods, and access a suite of decentralized financial services. If you want to see real-world use cases for crypto, Valora's in-app dApps page is the easiest way to access a growing list of the latest ReFi and DeFi applications on the Celo blockchain. Download the app and start exploring today at valoraapp.com forward slash empire. That's Valora, V-A-L-O-R-A, app, A-P-P, valoraapp.com forward slash empire. So there was a pretty large exploit this week in MEV land, somewhere to the tune of uh, $25 million, which was kind of a very complicated sandwich attack. So this has to do with a, a bug in the um, the MEV boost relay. But basically, there are kind of two parts to the to the exploit. And Miles, you can kind of correct me here um, on, on some of this stuff. But basically, there was sort of a malicious validator, the attacker, whoever this this person or entity was, you know, deposited the amount of ETH that was required, 32 ETH, to set up a validator. They waited like the eight days or, or whatever it was. And um, a bunch of, uh, you know, core to like PBS, right, which uh, the relay system that we have now, which was pioneered by Flash, Flashbots, is like a trial fix for eventually PBS is going to be enshrined in, in Ethereum. But right now we use relays and the core function of that is so that the proposers, which are the validators, are not able to see the contents of the block. And then these builders are separate entities, which there's frankly like a lot of concentration in, and they're pretty much like large, large kind of hedge funds that build these block. And then searchers will submit bundles, which are smaller, you know, kind of sets of transactions to the builders, the builders build them, and they get passed along via relay 
to, to the proposer. So in this case, they, and again, the, the key thing there is that they, what goes along the relay is the, the block header. So there's an understanding of how much profit is in that block, but you don't actually get to see the contents of that block. Um, so what ended up happening here was there was there was some sort of bug or this validator was able to exploit um, this design, see the contents of the block and actually reorder the transactions and steal the MEB. This is the part where, to be, to be honest, this is kind of a live exploit, so I'm not 100% sure what the connection was, but what that allowed them to do is to understand some details about some strategies that searchers had way further down in the MEB sort of value chain. And like one very common form of MEV, which I would categorize as a harmful form of MEV, is sandwiching. So if you have a transaction that takes place, you like reorder the transactions that you buy before the transaction, you sell after the transaction. The user, you kind of get screwed. But for MEV searchers, it's an atomic, ar uh, atomic arbitrage, um, so riskless, riskless profit. What ended up the this attacker, the sophisticated attacker, essentially set traps for some of these sandwich bot searchers. Um, in some very kind of like low liquidity pools. And they baited these searchers into sandwiching and taking these transactions. And the end result of that was that they ended up draining, I think it was uh, four searchers, four or five searchers, to the tune of uh, $5 million each. So Miles, like, correct me if I left out some of the, the technicalities no. there. No, I but, think that, that's basically it. I think he had to he had to set two traps. Um, he had to first of all, like, basically set set up a trap for these searchers so that they thought they were seeing a really profitable MEV opportunity. Right. That that's what they were going to bid enough, basically, to win the block based off of what they were seeing. Um, and so, you know, that I think he. He basically like he basically let them have a small win like a couple of days before this, so that they knew that the strategy was profitable, and then set them up basically when you know he was ready to be the proposer uh, for for this big one. Um, so that's the first first you have to like trick the searchers into going after these you know basically booby trapped pools. Um, then the second piece is that he had to basically fool the relayer into thinking that you know, he had returned a signed valid block header um, and the relayer, you know, this is the whole thing where privacy, the reason all of this happens off chain is because privacy is so hard to do on chain. Basically have to bring this auction off chain, you would have to encrypt all the transactions uh, in the entire blockchain. Um, but the relayer, you know, thought that it was getting a valid block. Uh, and so it revealed the contents um and then it tried to post that to the network and couldn't so the proposer says okay great now i know all the contents of the uh of the block i can see the searcher strategies go in i can do whatever i want with the block basically and so if that ever happens you know none of this would ever work because the proposers would see the contents of the searcher strategies replace it with their own every single time um and there would be you know no market for there would be you know no incentive to be a searcher at that point if you're a searcher at that point you just go and become a validator right so you can do that for yourself um but it seems that's like that's where things are trending is that mev eventually like it seems like the the, the incentive to be a searcher is going away but you guys understand mev way better than i do 
Mm, there is a strong incentive to vertically integrate, but it's not between like builders and proposers. It's between builders and searchers. Yeah. And that and that is already happening. A lot of the big builders are essentially yeah, running like, their own. Yeah, but it seems like searchers are just going to be outcompeted by validators, no? Because they don't hold well, the, they can't censor or reorder transactions and, and validators can. If, if Flashbox is broken, then then yes. But they, I, I don't think that's the case now. Um, uh, yeah. Right. So like the whole, re the whole point of like separating it is to make the proposer as dumb as possible and get paid, you know, as much as possible for, for just saying, yep, looks good to me. It's all valid. Um, but you know, that's, that's like the, uh, the fear here is that. I guess know, if MEV boost is actually working as it should work, then, then, then the searchers are fine. Yeah. Okay. Just a point of history, just to illustrate like why relayers are, are really needed is if you, what, what they're trying to do, the point of this design is to avoid centralization and collusion at the validator level. So if you rewind the clock to the way it used to work before the merge, there were, it was mining and there were these big mining operators. There were like five or six mining operators. And when you only have like five or six entities, then you don't really need infrastructure like relays or things like that because those five or six entities kind of can just trust each other they don't need some kind of enshrined you know mechanism designed to make them trust each other they have an economic incentive to do that what what changed when you had uh when when we had the merge we had a bunch of different validators out there and the design of ethereum wants to make sure that one tiny little validator out in arkansas or ethiopia or wherever you know has the same that they're that they're not disadvantaged by not being in one of these large like staking pools, for instance. So really, the point of these relays is to make it very easy, right? The only thing that a proposer is allowed to see is the actual reward, right? For for doing that, and like the whole point of this design is so that like the ten percent, you know, like the smaller groups of, of validators aren't can communicate in the same way with like the large actors in the space in the same way that the large actors would intercommunicate with one another it's like that's the that's kind of like the whole point of relay and then eventually just to repeat what i said like these off-chain sort of solutions which are these relays are going to be replaced by pbs which is enshrined within ethereum mm. but the that's challenge roadmap. that's yeah. like a year away i think though it's a, the, the challenge with enshrining it is because it's really hard to it into the protocol and still keep the contents of those blocks private until the moment that they're basically you know submitted on chain yeah yeah it seemed like there were kind of two camps here one one camp was like i have very little sympathy towards the mev bots and like good like yeah they should got they, they should get wrecked because they were they were sandwich doing these sandwich attacks and then there, there's like another bucket um of folks who call the flash bots drainer like a malicious actor um and thinks that they should like get punished or return the funds or whatever. Like, what what bucket do you guys fall into there? Um, I mean, yeah, I think I think uh, no one really feels bad for sandwichers getting sandwiched, and I think that's fine. Um, I think it's there are very valid concerns. You know, basically, a lot of problems we thought we had solved could could not be as buttoned up as we thought they were. Um, at least on the, you know, revealing the content side. Um, and yeah, I'd say it's, it's, it's malicious enough that they think they slashed the validator, but 
that's kind of the problem with the 32 ETH. It's like, you know, you're, you're slashed like four ETH or something like that. And you just stole $20 million. It's not a big problem. Yeah. So basically you're not posting enough collateral. I'm, I'm in agreement with you, Miles. I think, look, nobody's gonna, you know, it's like playing the world's smallest violin for frankly, like kind of a, a pretty predatory, you know, suppose strategy that's supposedly run by very sophisticated actors. So, Optically, yeah, like no one's shedding any tears, but I do think there's a question of integrity in the systems. Like people want to be able to trust that when you submit your bundles and blocks to relays that you're not going to get exploited there. Yeah. And that is foundational to how blocks are mined or you know created in Ethereum today. And you don't want to undermine trust in those those systems. I also so that, that, yeah, sorry, go ahead, Michael. I was just gonna say that that was like my one question coming out of this is like, okay, you know, it feels like MEV, you it's kind of this ever expansive, um, you know, set of learnings and lessons and strategies. Do we feel like this is now gonna be something that's tested and tried more often? Or do we do feel like this is going to be something that, you know, is more regularly occurring? Yeah, I think, I think one thing, my short answer is probably yes. Um, but my, my second order effect, I think is it could, you know, I think Justin could was on bell curve uh the mev version uh the other day and he was talking mm -hmm. about mev burn um and i think that that does make right. actually a lot of sense and you know this could accelerate sort of the the push of of burning the mev portion of the of the block rewards um you know again i always say no one's looking out for the common heath holder but uh i do think that you know obviously that would accrue a lot of value to any sort of ETH holder, but it would also kind of get rid of this, this almost lottery system where, you know, if you win the lottery, then on like, you know, the most valuable block of the week, then, you know, it, it skews all these, you know, sort of APRs and averages um, way up, but it also provides like a lot of incentive that, you know, if you are the proposer and you can figure something out, then you can run off with the funds. Um, burning the MEV would, would, would actually probably, you know, absolve this, right? Um, you, right? You never have to worry about proposer shenanigans again. Yeah. To just like, just um, sort of round out that explanation that, that you, because it's a little bit of a technical explanation is there's, there's an incentive to pool in Ethereum because the way that validators are chosen, uh, which who, who gets to mine with block is totally random. I think there are like 550,000 validators so it's like a relatively low percentage that you end up winning so you kind of have this you know if law of large numbers and averages if you sort of pool your power together then there's like more of a steady stream of of sort of income so you have this incentive to pool but then the collateral that you post to your pool is relatively small compared to like a gigantic payout right in this case 20 million dollars is nothing on the you know 32 eth or whatever that you're required to actually stake so there are just some some kind of weird incentives there uh, at the consensus level but the flashbots team is super smart um i know they're hard at work trying to make sure that this doesn't happen again and actually there was a i, I want to maybe tease a little bit without giving everything away there was a really matt cutler um also he's the ceo at, at block native who's like very deep in the weeds uh in of mev himself and he runs a a relay and a block builder and there was a very interesting there's like a very long discussion to be had and it was it was had and it will be be out on this week's bell curve about um kind of the merits of you know flatbots runs their relay for free 
And, you know, Matt's sort of argument is that infrastructure at the Ethereum level, especially off-chain infrastructure that the protocol depends on, should not be guaranteed, like taken for granted. Like there should be strong economics to ensure that they keep doing that. It's a there are very good arguments on both sides of that debate, but that's your little teaser. Yeah, <laughs> I gotta stick around to, to listen to that. Um, um, all right, I, uh, you know what? This is kind of a feel good story, actually. Uh, this was the Euler DeFi recovery. So this was, I think, it was the largest crypto recovery of all time, about $200 million. The hacker appears to have been doxxed as well, um, which you can find if you want to look it up, but I'm, you know, I, I'm not going to repeat that stuff here. Um, but yeah, it ended up being, I, I guess I guess it was kind of a happy ending in that the Euler team sort of got their, their funds back. But so definitely props to them. I, I'd be curious, like what your guys kind of thoughts or, or takeaways were from this whole exploit and then the return of the funds. What do you think? I, I totally agree. I mean, it, it's a great outcome for the, for the situation. Um, frankly, I think this is a testament to why we need better systems for security monitoring, um, for bug bounties, um, for basically the entire system that protects these systems. Uh, and you know, the, it, it's unfortunate that we have to get to the point of like doxing the person holding their personal identity over their head to be able to you know, get them to give the money back. Um, if we had, and, and I know that there's a ton of teams building, you know, out this stuff and I, they're working really hard to make it more and more robust every single day. But, um, I, I think that this is just more a testament to how we can prevent this from happening in the first place and, and the need for that, um, being ever present with you know any sort of smart contract that has value in it i like the way you put it mike that it's a feel-good story i'm not sure if this happens in other industries but i feel like this happens time and time again in crypto where you have a lot of people who like band together to help out and you you saw that with this it was like yeah you shout out tay like from what i heard tay jumped in like hudson jameson uh sam cz son like i i, I heard there were like just a number of different people who committed a lot of time to basically doing like tracking this person down in in like like both on chain but also off chain and um yeah getting the salt so definitely a big win miles if you're talking you're on you're on mute buddy on mute here thank you yeah i think everybody is you know euler has a great i would say you know very positive sentiment among the communities everybody's rooting for them um i think we see this a lot where hackers are are good at getting the funds but very bad at laundering them and it's getting increasingly hard to do that so that's, that's positive um but yeah I, I i would agree with michael's take that um you know i think we're seeing more and more the limitations of audits uh and more and more of a need for you know ongoing monitoring tools um you know i think i think circuit breakers are really really interesting uh they break composability which is what has kind of stopped their adoption so far. Um, but something like that, if we can get over that hump, you know, the the amount of pressure on audits, you know, would, would come down quite a lot, right? Um, and so, yeah, that's stuff that we think about a lot with like Osmosis too. Um, we have like, you know, IBC rate limiting now so that, you know, on any given day, only 20% of, you know, the TVL of, a, of an IBC channel can move in or out. Um, Mm. you can instantiate rules like that so that you know on one day sure maybe you don't 
double your TVL. Like if that was like going to happen without sort of this sort of requirement, you know, maybe there people are told that they have to wait a few days to deposit more, but it's way more, you know, you'd much rather have like a slow, slow, you know, onboarding of liquidity rather than, you know, allowing all the liquidity to exit on one day. Um, so yeah, definitely, definitely some service providers out there working towards, working towards that vision. Um, shout out, shout out range in the cosmos uh, ecosystem. You guys wonder what, why these exploiters end up doing this? They can't do much with that money. They can't move that money out of crypto. Why don't they just do this for, why don't they just get handsomely paid for some, some bounty instead? Now I mean, you got this like legal yeah. trouble and all this stuff. I mean, it's not been a good story for this exploiter. Shout out one of our portfolio companies, Immunify. Um, you know, they, they build a bug bounty program. Uh, I know Coderina is another one that, you know, has the similar types of challenges. Uh, challenges is in you get to compete to find bugs. Um, and that's where you can turn from, you know, black or gray hat to white hat and also get paid for finding these things. Um, I, I think that has become the industry norm. And the incentive model is pretty strong, which is like 10% of the value is usually what the bug bounty is. Um, so, that, that's, you know, and that's a, that's a payment that's legal and agreed to and boom. Uh, so yeah. I, I think there's a... <laughs> still still <laughs> yeah no I, I think that we just have to make that more the industry norm um like every single technology trend you you have different security standards different security models that you gravitate towards when it's a centralized system everybody's got firewalls you know miles to your point firewalls are great but it, you know what are you going to do if something gets past it do you have to cut up the circuit breaker and and kill composability like we just have to find the new norms that work for this industry. Audits are a great start and, and necessary component, but only one that uh, I think we need to find others to to accompany it. Yeah, the killing. Comp I think we're at the stage of crypto where to like use an way overly used example, but if you take the analogy of the internet in the early days, there was this overriding narrative of democratizing information and giving everyone access. It was going to level the playing field and. There were a whole bunch of other narratives that came, uh, or, you know, started around that time too. And like in some, some of those narratives kind of got validated. In some cases, they kind of did, and so others just didn't. There are a lot of like supposed advantages of crypto, right? Composability is one of those. Uh, transparency is one. Immutability are others. And maybe some of those narratives end up coming totally true. Maybe others are like slightly less true. Like Cosmos is definitely doing a lot of experimentation with async composability. And maybe for like, it's actually same with ETH uh, layer twos, right? So maybe like we discover like, hey, composability is really cool, but maybe it's actually like async composability is kind of like 80-20 rule. Really good async is, is just good enough. So I, I think it's, yeah, all this stuff is basically being, the trade-offs are being figured out in real time. We'll probably knock some of those narratives off, but then we'll figure out the ones that end up existing and really matter long run. Yeah. I'm trying to think guys, if we have any, oh, uh, maybe we could just end. Um, I'm going to ask everyone to put their, their speculator hats uh, back on, but we've got, uh, we've got framework, Shanghai framework lawyers are going to love this one. <laughs> yeah. Adam's Adam's like, uh, Michael, there's a lot of financial advice in uh, this. Last, <laughs> this <laughs> uh, um, no, there isn't. There is none. Yeah, there's none, none, none at all. Um, Okay, but I, I do want to get your guys' perspective because we've got the you know the major Shanghai upgrade um, 
or I guess Chappella as it's been as it's being labeled, which is coming up relatively soon. Sorry, well, I should know the exact date off the top of my head, but it's I think it was April twelfth. Twelfth next Wednesday. Yeah. Okay. So maybe it makes sense to to do this now because next Friday we're going to be talking about the aftermath and what it ended up looking like. But the big the big question that has caused an enormous amount of debate is what is the impact going to be on people taking their funds out of their unstaking their Ethereum? And again, like there's kind of a bear and a bull case for this. And the bear case is, hey, there's an, an enormous amount of Ethereum that's been locked in this contract for a long time. Uh, people are going to want liquidity and there's going to be significant sell pressure on Ethereum. The bull case is, and I don't think it's mutually exclusive, but you are now going to de-risk what has henceforth been, hence previously been a major risk, right? And now people know that when you stake in Ethereum, you can withdraw that stake and that that actually could lead to more more Ethereum being staked actually over time. Um, so I guess like my question to all of you, if you had to put your like guessing caps on is what do you think the immediate? Um, yeah, thanks. I don't have any tinfoil caps today, just, uh, just, <laughs> just your speculator caps. Um, but uh, if, if, you had to, if you had to guess, like what do you think the short-term impact of this is going to be? And then like longer term, longer run. I mean, uh, all, my perspective is, um, and this doesn't have anything to do with the value of it. I, I, this is more just a, a comment around the entire ecosystem. Um, I think there will be a lot that happens uh, over the first couple of days. So keep in mind, the the upgrade is happening uh, next week, but so much of the ETH is being staked not directly on validator nodes. It's being staked in ecosystems like Lido, where you get an actual uh, liquid staking token out of it. The the LSTs have been liquid for years now. Um, so you've actually had liquidity on, and you know to the three nines or two nines worth of liquidity um, via curve if you wanted to, to sell those assets. Um, so that is kind of like not part of the ecosystem that uh, could be removing and selling or removing, withdrawing and doing whatever with it. Um, I do think that there's an element, uh, frankly, of taxes where if you've been earning staking rewards and those are now liquid, there's going to be a tax income hit. Granted, that doesn't mean you have to sell the assets to cover the tax bill immediately. It just means that there will be taxes factored in. I think that's probably one of the biggest structural things that uh, needs to be recognized. Um, and it'll probably be a little bit wonky right around uh, right around the upgrade. Um, it doesn't seem like Lido or any of the other liquid staking providers are going to be ready to go. They need to go through their own upgrade path. And, and last um, we read, uh, Lido is targeting May for their upgrade to be able to withdraw from, from state ETH. Um, so I think a lot of this is also going to happen over the course of the next couple of months, not necessarily the next couple of days uh, following the upgrade. Um, but yeah, it'll probably be a little bit wonky. Um, like I said, over the short term, medium term, I think it'll kind of dissipate. Um, and this will be just generally a, a catalyst, as you were saying, Mike, to more staking activity coming on board. Um, you know, I know of uh, a lot of um, so here's another example. We as a fund can put our assets into um, something like a, a state ETH, but then we get Steeth back, for instance. There's a lot of tax complexity when it comes to moving that ETH into Steeth, not to mention Steeth is a rebalancing token where you're earning more tokens every single day. Sure, you can wrap it, and, and that is another complexity because each one of these, in the most conservative view of, of tax guidance, is a taxable event. 
Um, so unless you're underwater with your ETH purchases or you know at par with your ETH purchases, you're going to incur a tax income when you swap those assets from ETH to Steeth. When you stake through a centralized provider like Coinbase, um, and not you know it could be any provider, but you know a, a centralized staking provider um, like a, a custodian like Coinbase, you don't get a token back. And when you don't get a token back, uh, that doesn't incur a tax hit. Now, probably most of the institutions that are staking are not going to want to, or that own ETH that want to stake, are not going to want to incur a tax hit as well. When you receive the liquid rewards every single month from the centralized custodial staking, you do have a tax income element, but those those rewards are uh, liquid. Um, so there's just this whole kind of perspective of, do we think ETH staking percentage will go up or down following this upgrade? Our belief is it's going to go up over over the medium to long term, probably by a large margin, because of the effect of de-risking, mostly from an institutional perspective. Um, and a lot of that, I think, will aggregate into the custodial staking environment. Yeah, I don't, I don't have a lot to add. I think the the tax considerations are a great point. Um, you know, I'll be just very curious to see what the withdrawal queue looks like and how it how it evolves in the, over the first couple of weeks. Um, and then, you know, I think one thing that's that's exciting is that we actually might have some some rational price discovery with the LST tokens. Now that you actually understand your liquidity risk, like you understand exactly how much, you know, time to maturity it takes to redeem these tokens and make them liquid. Um, so yeah, I think, I think that will be interesting. And then, but overall, you know, couldn't agree more. It just de-risks the concept of staking so much. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see, just how many players come off the sidelines, um, you know, maybe not as like, maybe a little bit muted because of the market environment. Um, but, you know, this over a year or two or whenever, you know, activity speculation starts to come back from sort of the most conservative participants, um, you know, this kind of opens the door to, to staking for them. So yeah, the, expecting it to be a little weird in the beginning, but overall very 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 bullish what one other just kind of or secondary effect of this change you know let's assume that staking rate goes up as we're describing over the next 12 uh ish months um what also happens unless there is a commensurate increase in activity or um, fees flowing through the network is that staking rate the percentage of rate returned goes down so there's an inverse relationship to that um and Hal Press uh, has talked about this a bit on Twitter of just like, it's kind of, it's going to be interesting where, you know, you get more state, which is probably good for network health, um, you know, more participation in the ecosystem, but at the same time, staking rate as a percentage return goes down. Um, it, it, I think that's going to be one of the most interesting things to follow, like over the next 12 months, as we see these changes play out. Um, that's just something that we're tracking. As soon as it goes down, you'll be able to restake it with Eigenlayer. Take on yeah. <laughs> you know, a little bit more risk and then you know, get those numbers back up. Exactly. Man, that's going to be interesting because you know, I, I do remember I was listening to Tarun in one of his, um, I can't remember, one of his talks, but he was excited about one of the things that restaking allows you to do is basically kind of tranche out different risks um you know different portions of risk that you'd like to take around ETH stake and i think miles it was you who was telling me that was um like 
in one of those protocols, maybe it was Element, Element five that allowed you to strip out the yield between kind of principal versus variable yield. Everyone thought you were going to take the safe, like uh, you know, principal yield, but it was you know, crypto's a bunch of degens, so it was like people just uh, you know, <laughs> fold into the the higher the higher rate, the variable stuff, and it it will be interesting. I think it's going to attract an enormous amount of demand as soon as you kind of tranche out the. I, I don't really know how you would how you would do that, assign riskier or slightly less risky parts of that yield, but. Yeah, I think a lot of innovation and I think a lot of innovation and definitely maybe a little 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 cause for it just something to keep an eye on is um some of the financial engineering that goes on with uh yeah east taking yields. Exciting and terrifying, you know. You can see like sort of <laughs> restaking re index, right? That uh, you know, it's got a tranche that's just regular staked ETH, then you've got your safe restaking options like Arbitrum Optimism, and then it gets really wonky towards the junior tiers. And you know, Miles, you, you were talking about it earlier when talking about operating costs, but uh, I do think that one of the things that's going to be really sub um, substantially mispriced from a user perspective is the additional slashing risk that you take on by participating in one of those ecosystems. Uh, mm -hmm. You know the the slashing risk of being in a Lido pool is is fairly small. Like you may see a lower return, uh, but you're not going to lose your state. Whereas when it comes to actually restaking, there is a principal asset risk. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think that needs to be a lot of thoughtful work being done, both on you know the validators who are going to be opting in on behalf of their depositors to understand what they need to see in terms of return to justify the risk. And there's going to be a lot of work and negotiation on middleware side to say, okay, you know, here's what we have to pay. Or here's the bare minimum we have to pay to get incentivize people to take on, you know, this risk. Right. Yeah. I, I personally can't wait until next bull cycle. There are yields of only 500% and it's going to be, well, much, uh, much less than it was last cycle. These ones are sustainable, baby. <laughs> <laughs> thousand percent apy wait. let's go <laughs> thousand percent yeah absolutely all right guys this has been a uh a really fun one i think it's a, a good place to leave it here um miles thanks for for subbing yeah. in here and and joining yeah. the the roundup crew um nice little season three Depend, depending on how uh, upset santiago and uh, vance are at my early comments i'll be He's on, coming I'll be back on. Are you willing to shave your head, Miles? Are you willing to shave your head? It's going to factor in. You know, I'm the sixth man of uh, Belker. If I can hop off the bench. No. Tap in, tap in. <laughs> exactly. Love it. All right, guys. This is a fun one. Cheers, yeah. everyone. It was. See ya.